Well, we do live in a violent world, don't we? And it raises its ugly head every week. And what we find is that it becomes more and more difficult to fight for a good faith. When we turn on the TV, we see violence around us. And it seems as though it is often those mass shootings that catch the most attention, even though there's all kinds of violence, child abuse, domestic abuse, other types of abuse and violence that is directed toward people. But it is these mass shootings that often catch our attention, and there were two more this past week. At least 11 people were killed in a mass shooting this past weekend in Monterey Park, California, as the city's Asian American community was celebrating the Lunar New Year. Another seven were killed in a mass shooting in Moon Bay, California. These individuals were agricultural workers. And so today, I think it's appropriate that we talk about violence. And I want to give you a couple of disclaimers first and foremost. I am not a psychologist, and I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm simply a pastor that's making some observations about the biblical text and the way it relates to the things that happen around us. Secondly, this message is not about guns, primarily. It is about our addiction to violence. Let me put it this way, violence is the addiction and guns are most often the drug of choice. Just like people who have addiction problems and substance abuse, the addiction is one thing. The drug of choice could be heroin, meth, fentanyl, alcohol, whatever it may be. And so what we find is that there is an addiction to violence in our world, not just our country, all around the world. And what is often used the most is gun violence. Now we can focus on the fact that in our own country, there are 120 guns to every 100 people in our country. There are more guns in our country than there are people that live here. We could also say that there is minimal gun legislation. And what we observe is a slow motion massacre in various parts of our country. The two shootings this past week is the 38th mass shooting in this year. 2023. Now what is a mass shooting? That's where four people have been shot, not including the shooter. So 38 of those have already happened, and here it is, the last Sunday of January. It is the sixth mass murder of the month. A mass murder is defined as four people killed in a mass shooting, not including the shooter. So 38 mass shootings and the sixth mass murder, we have the highest gun homicide rate in the world. And obviously there are changes that need to be made. But that's not the core of the problem. You see, in fighting for a good faith, one of the things that we're going to need to deal with is this tendency toward hatred and violence. We've been talking about fighting nationalism, racism, homophobia, now today we're talking about violence and we're going to end this series talking next week about uh, misogyny and fighting sexism and then two weeks from today we'll finish it with fighting ageism which 
sometimes there is a lot of prejudice against people who have grown into their senior years. We're going to talk about that. We've used several key verses uh, as kind of our platform. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made you, when you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I have said it's not only important to fight a good fight, it's important to fight for a good type of faith as well. We said out of Ephesians six twelve that many of the things that we see around us are systematic. These are systemic type things. It's about systems, not just about people. This is what Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers in this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what we do we do? We present a vision and this vision is represented again by the Apostle Paul for Jesus is our peace who has made two groups, at least in the first century, Jews and Gentiles, one and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So today let's talk about fighting violence. This affects millions of people around the world every year. Each year, more than 1.6 million people worldwide lose their life to violence. Now, that's not all gun violence. It can be all kinds of different types of violence. What's interesting to me is the World Health Organization back in 2002 gave this definition of violence. Quote, the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself, another person, or against a group or community, which either results in or has the high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. So what we find is there's all kinds of things that can be defined as violence. The one thing that we find is that it is so central that it becomes the cultural norm. And the reason I say that is because you and I know we have not seen the last mass shooting, right? All it might take is another week or two or month where it might be at a school or a synagogue or even a church. And what we find is that it becomes a cultural norm. In some cultures, violence becomes so central that sometimes that is what it is defined by. And you might think of certain areas of the world that you think are quite violent and it's quite dangerous. Our own nation in the eyes of other nation has, is defined by our violence. The United States has been pretty much at war since its inception. If you do a study on this, you'll find that there's only a handful of years where we have not been involved in a conflict in some way. With the inundation of weapons more advanced and more deadly, what we find is that the war machine continues to go on. If you look at the amount of advertising for the military, the amount of violence that is in movies, the amount of heroes that are often portrayed as statues 
in the center square of some cities, what you find is that we anticipate violence, don't we? And as we anticipate it, we often feel that we need more and more and more to defend ourselves. That's certainly true of us in the United States. We spend more on our military budget than the full combination of the top 10 in the whole world. It's amazing, really. But it never seems to be enough. Even though we live on the safest plot of geography in the world, it's not easy to invade the United States. To the north, you have Canada. To the south, you have Mexico. And yet, at the same time, what we find is we live in constant fear, don't we? That we might be invaded. And so we spend and spend and spend, and the social safety nets often are lost. We don't have enough to spend on Social Security. We'll talk about that under ageism, right? We don't have enough to spend on the social safety net to make sure people are not hungry and starving, but we sure have enough for the next advancement of weapons. Now, I understand we need military protection, and I really am thankful for soldiers who give their lives in protection of our country. What I am saying, though, is that we anticipate violence, and that violence is something that continues to grow like an addict needing a heavier hit. Does that make sense? Okay, and what we find is, again, the weapons, the machinery, is not the addiction. So what we want to talk about is out of that passage I read for you this morning, out of the episode of Cain and Abel, I want to talk a little bit about violence and how it came to be the way it came. So what I want to do is ask four critical questions. These four critical questions, I'm not going to take a long time on. I could make this out of a four-week series, but I'm not going to. What I want to do is ask, where did it all begin? What are some of the root causes? Is God as violent as we are? And how do we reduce the amount of violence in the world? Okay, so four questions that I want to address today. And the first one is, where did it all begin? Now, I asked you to listen closely to Genesis 4, 1 through 28 when I read it. This is the first murder that is recorded in the Bible. But did you notice what they were arguing and fighting over? Yes, they wanted acceptance by God, right? One offered the yields of the crop. Other offered uh, from his animal flock. So what we find is the crops and the flocks are kind of at the center of the story. And that's what we tend to focus on. But did you notice as I was reading that as human civilization begins to advance toward the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, it talked about different advancements in society. Cities were starting to be built. Uh, there were things like workers of iron, people who began to learn instruments and music and all kinds of advancements that began to take place. Now, as human society continued to advance, one of the things that they argued for 
to continue the advancement of civilization, and it's hinted at in the Genesis 4 passage. And that is, who's going to control the land? Who's going to control the land? Now, in Genesis chapter 4, what we find is that first hint of the use of the land, either to feed flocks or to grow crops. Agriculture-based civilization is a double-edged sword. For you see, cultivating crops allowed for larger communities to develop, cities to develop. Did you know that written language was originally developed as a, one use of it was recording uh, the grain uh, stores that were taking place in that day? An agricultural-based economy introduced the new concept of land ownership. And once land could be owned, it could also be coveted, and it could also be fought over. So when you rethink the Genesis 4, it's not just about appeasing God. We'll get to that in a moment with the next question. But what it does tell us is Cain and Abel were fighting over something. And what we find is that at the heart of it was the use of the land. Are we going to use it to feed flocks? Are we going to use it to grow crops? They bring an offering. Now, we're not told in the text what it is about Cain's offering to God that was unacceptable. The text does not tell us that. Abel's offering is received by God. Cain's is not. Why? Well, Cain is warned by God. So when you listen to the text, one of the things that you find is that after Cain rises up and kills his brother, one of the things that God does is ask him a question. Where is your brother Abel? And Cain responded, and it's very insightful because it's at the heart of a lot of conflict in our world. He says, am I my brother's keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is yes, you are. And so am I. We are all the, our brother's keeper. What, find, what we find God doing is saying, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So Cain gets angry. He lashes out. He kills Abel. And what we find is that in his anger, he has already been warned by God to put it in check. For you see, when the Lord saw Cain's anger, God asked, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. You must keep it in check. You can't lash out. You can't act upon it, right? Because that's only going to spiral into other things. So what we find is Cain does not heed the warning. He acts upon his anger. And as he does so, he kills his brother. He is forced out of that area, and he becomes a wanderer on the earth, the text tells us. And this is the story of exile. It's been told in the Adam and Eve story where they're kicked out of Eden. 
It's told here in this story of Cain that is kicked out of the land. Later, it is the story of the nation of Israel when they go into exile. It's a theme that is introduced here that is picked up time and time again in the Bible. Well, what is Cain going to do as a refugee, as an individual that is on the run? He's worried about that. He says, whoever finds me is going to kill me. Now, that begs the question, where did these other people come from, right? Now, we're going to put that aside. That's an interesting one. (laughs) But he seems to be fearful that someone is going to enact revenge upon him. And God says, I'm going to protect you from vigilantism. And he says, whoever kills Cain is going to suffer my vengeance seven times over. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture. What's most important out of the text is Cain does not consider himself his brother's keeper. He doesn't look out for his welfare. I don't care what their disagreement's about. He felt it was better to get rid of the person rather than reconcile with his brother. And so here, what we find is it all begins with competition And a commitment to tribalism because the rest of Genesis chapter 4 talks about Cain's family, his sons and grandsons. And by the time you get to Lamech, he is already saying if Cain has a vengeful attitude and he's going to commit uh, uh, revenge seven times, well, I'm Lamech. Seventy times seven, he says. Uh, Remember Jesus one time? He says... How many times should we forgive our brothers? He says 70 times 7. That's right out of this text. So this commitment to tribalism becomes more valued than the brotherhood of a shared humanity. And that's where it starts. And it gets very dark. And it gets very demonic. Second question. What are the root causes of violence? There's four of them, I think. And the first one is what is our image of God? The second one is, what is this mimetic desire? I talked about that a little bit last week. Third is death anxiety, and the fourth is injustice. Let's first talk about our image of God. I think the root cause of so many religions that go astray is how they view God. So Cain's DNA is in us. Cain calls his brother other an enemy. And one of the root causes of that is he feels that God cannot be appeased. And so he wants to get rid of the competition. It seems as though Abel is accepted in the eyes of God, but he is rejected. If I get rid of Abel, then I'll be able to appease this God that seems so hard to please. If God is one of violence and retribution, then we who are made in his image naturally have some of that DNA as well. But what if mankind from the very start misunderstood the nature of God? What if they misunderstood what God is like? And what if the coming of Jesus is to give us an accurate portrait of what God is really like? Well, this question was asked Dr. Pete ends at a conference that he was speaking at, and I think it is very interesting. Let's listen to his answer. Uh, 
Right. Well, we need to ask a couple specific questions that get asked over and over and over again. One is Old Testament genocide, 1 Samuel 15, for example. It's not just Samuel who's saying God wants this. It's the narrator. Right. And so, or the narrator, is no, why is that a problem? Why is it not a problem? Well, yeah. What's going um, on with genocide? Well, I think, see, to me, that's an example of the Israelites living in a, a tribal culture where warfare and one-upmanship against other nations is just the way of the world. And the Israelites understand God's dealings with them along that same paradigm, which I think is, is undone in the New Testament, and I think it's even debated in the Old Testament. So it's not an Old Testament versus New Testament thing. It, it is more like a movement. You see this dialogue happening. Then with the Gospel, it's sort of like amps it up to, I think, a different level. But, uh, you know, I, uh, what's wrong with it is that um, I can't imagine, and I don't mind starting an argument that way, because that's, I mean, I, I can't imagine the God who is the creator of the universe as we know it, with galaxy clusters and dark matter and supernovas and billions of galaxies with billions of stars and then subatomic particles and everything in between that we can't possibly fathom. I, I can't imagine he's all about annexing territory and and killing people because they worship the wrong God. Um, I can understand why Israelites would portray God that way. And I accept their portrayal as their authentic portrayal, and I want to learn why they're saying that. But that doesn't mean that now defines God for us forever and ever. Amen. I think we still have to think theologically. I think um, the tribal context, again, of, of that time is a very important one to keep in mind. Everyone thought like this. Um, there are still countercultural redemptive elements in the Bible, even in the midst of some of these uh, genocidal um, um, uh, episodes. Uh, but, but still, uh, I, th I think we can rightly say that people of faith have moved beyond that mentality and I think for Christians at least, rightly so, it's, it's paying attention to the teachings of Jesus. So I think that's insightful that in early history, there is a projection of our own tendencies of anger and violence upon God. And that's found in all kinds of mythologies that has taken place over the years. Second is mimetic desire. Last week, I talked a little bit about this. Rene Girard, the French-born scholar, basically was saying that violence is a chronic uh, problem in human societies because we all want the same thing. So mimetic means to imitate. We see what other people have, and we want the exact same thing. And the way that we feel that we can get it is by somehow getting them out of the way and taking it. To a certain extent, that's what Cain is doing with his brother Abel. He wants acceptance by God. He wants control of the land. And if he gets rid of Abel, he feels he will have it. Violence grows because we have this desire for things that we see other people have. 
And many times people will rob. Sometimes people will burglarize their homes of other people because of this mimetic desire of wanting the same thing. This is a great insight. Uh, Gerard talks about how this is found in all kinds of literature and religion and in studies of anthropology as well. That violence grows not because we're different, but because we are similar. We all have these aching things that we want and we can't have. And they feel the only way that we can get it is to eliminate the competition. That's what Cain was doing in Genesis chapter 4. Number three, root cause is, is death anxiety. The greatest enemy of mankind is death, and we all live in its shadow, and we all fear it. And if we think other people are a threat to us, then many times what we feel is if we can remove that threat, then this death anxiety that we have in our soul will somehow subside. And so we make enemies out of other people because of our fear of death. One of the things Jesus came to do is to give us an accurate portrait of who God is. I believe, and you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again, God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. There never was a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known that or recognized it, but now we do. The other thing is, Jesus came to remove the fear of death that we are all enslaved to. And in Genesis chapter 2, you can look this up, I mean, not Genesis, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You can look at that at your own leisure and you'll find that the death anxiety was the one thing that Jesus accomplished by his resurrection from the grave. We don't need to be in fear of death. It's a transition into the presence of God. Lastly, what causes it? Injustice. Extreme economic inequality often creates tension between the haves and the have-nots in society, and it often results in conflict, resentment, and crimes like theft and mugging and other things that are expressions of violence. And so once we have this, this injustice done against us, we often feel that the only way we're going to get justice is if we push back harder. And many times that's what we see in society. Certain segments of society are often sinned against and some have no power, but some come together and that's where riots occur. You see, once extreme inequality is established as a status quo, whereby extreme wealth coexists with extreme poverty, and that is controlled by a powerful group of people, then there will be pushback. And so injustice often causes violence as well. Now I know this is simplistic, but what if, what if these things are all things that we struggle with, but we just are not aware that we struggle with them? Now I'm going to come back to this next week. Because sometimes... Men dominating over women goes back again to the understanding of who God is and what he is like. If God is seen only as a male, a powerful male, the ultimate powerful male, then many times what happens is 
that is then put down upon women who are seen sometimes as less than or inferior. So hang tight. We'll come back to that next week. And we're going to try to say God is not a dominant ape. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Last question that I want to talk about for a few moments uh, is what is it that we do to reduce the amount of violence in the world around us. And I've listed these several things that I think are important, okay? They make sense on li in light of what we've already said this morning. Number one, get a better vision of the nature of God as revealed in Jesus. Number two, rebuke the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence is if I hit back harder, then uh, I can create peace. That does not happen. Somebody pushes back harder, they hit back harder, and it just goes deeper and deeper. Number three, do we embrace the value of all people, not just some people? Are all people made in the image of God? Are all people deemed worthy of love and respect? Number four, embrace the common good, not just capitalistic greed. The common good would reduce a lot of violence. But if the bottom line is always profit, how can we use people in our country to get richer? Violence will continue. Number five, can we enact better policies and sensible legislation? You have to stop with love and prayers. That does not change a darn thing. Thoughts and prayers doesn't change anything. What is the legislation that has worked around the world in other developed countries where violence is not as, as dominant as in our own country? And are we open to it? Or if we are not, why? And finally, number six, will we embrace the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And one of those sins is the sin of Cain. The sin of competition done away through violence and murder. I truly believe one of the things that Jesus does when he hangs upon the cross is he shows us the way forward. Here he is, he's been crucified, and he looks down upon those who put him there, and he says, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He absorbs it so that he might transform it. And those of us who look not to a donkey or not to an elephant, but to a lamb, have the potential of changing our heart and reducing the amount of vengeance that is often inside the human spirit. So the way I would like to conclude here today is to First, quote, Mahatma Gandhi. He says, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary and the evil it does is permanent. Isn't that true? Hmm. The other thing I want to do is show you um, a video that is called for the eight, Hymn for the 81%. This song uh, is written by one of the leaders of the Vote Common Good uh, organization that is trying to 
help people see that religion can always be used wrongly. And this individual here, uh, Daniel Dietrich is his name that wrote it, but this is a cover of it by two individuals, Maddie and Jordan Cattenhorn out of Paradox Church. And the hymn of the 81% is, it is the sorrow of Christians not really believing the teachings of Jesus, not trusting the red words that are in the Gospels. Sometimes we will need to take a stand, and that's what this hymn is. I think you'll find it quite instructive. And so let's listen to this, and then we're going to close with one short chorus before we head our own way. Let's watch. I grew up in your churches Sunday morning, evening service Melting tears at the foot of the rugged cross You taught me every life was sacred Feed the hungry, clothe the naked I learned from you the highest law is love And I believed you when you said I should trust the words in red To guide my steps through a wicked world I assumed you'd do the same So imagine my dismay When I watched you lead the sheep to the wolves You said to love the lost So I'm loving you said to speak the truth I'm calling you out why won't you live the words that you put in my mouth may love overcome and justice roll down it started putting kids in cages Ripping mothers from their babies And I look to you to speak on their behalf Oh, but all I heard was silence Oh, worse, you justified it Singing glory, hallelujah, raise the flag Your fear turned into hatred But you baptized it with lame Torn from the pages of the good book You weaponize religion And you wonder why I'm leaving Find Jesus on the wrong side of your wall You said to love the lost I'm loving you now You said to speak the truth I'm calling you out Why won't you live the word That you put in my mouth May love overcome And justice roll down mm. 
The Justice Creed by Brian McLaren says, We believe that the living God is just and that the true and living God loves justice. God delights in just laws and rejoices in just people. God sides with those who are oppressed by injustice and stands against oppressors. God is grieved by unjust people and the unjust systems they create and sustain. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice and God's kingdom belongs to those willing to be persecuted for the sake of justice. To God, justice is a weighty thing which can never be ignored. We believe that Jesus, the liberating king, came to free humanity from injustice and to display the justice of God in word and deed, in life, death, and resurrection. The justice which God desires, Jesus taught, must surpass that of the hypocrites, for the justice of God is a compassionate justice, rich in mercy and abounding in love for the last, the least, the lost, and the outcast. On his cross, Jesus drew the injustice of humanity into the light, and there the heartless injustice of human empire met the reconciling justice of the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims that the true justice of God, naked, vulnerable, and scarred by abuse, is stronger than the violent injustice of humanity armed with weapons, conceit, deceit, and lies. We believe that the Holy Spirit is here now, convicting the world of sin and justice, warning that God's judgment will come on all that is unjust. We believe that the kingdom of God is justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit, then, we seek first God's kingdom and God's justice. For the world as it is has not yet come, uh, become the world as God desires it to be. And so we live and work and pray until justice rolls down like water and flows strong and free like a never-failing stream. For we believe that the living God is just and that the true and the living God loves justice. Amen and amen. I want us to close with a little chorus that's usually sung at Christmas time, but I think it's apropos uh, for our uh, time here as we close this morning. Uh, it is called, Let There Be a Peace on Earth. So let that be our closing prayer together today. Uh, let there be peace on earth.
faith and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, peace that was meant to be. Have a great week, everyone. Be a peacemaker this week. God bless you.